Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we've got sort of an odd mixture of topics, but it's two things we really wanted to talk about, so we're just combining them into, into one episode. We'll first talk about Zombieland Double Tap, or just Zombieland 2. I can never remember that it's called Double Tap. Um, <laughs> we'll be talking about the new Zombieland film. And then in the second half of the show, we'll move into a discussion about the series premiere of Watchmen, uh, which we both saw last night and we're very excited to discuss. So that'll be today's show. Uh, so, so kicking things off with Zombieland Double Tap, um, I was pleasantly surprised by the film because comedy sequels are, are difficult and we've seen like the longer it is from when your movie came out to when you get the sequel, a lot of that enthusiasm can die off. Yeah. Like we saw it with Zoolander 2. Um, I think Anchorman 2 is honestly all right. I actually think it's pretty funny, but it doesn't hold a candle to the original. Yeah. And box office wise, I think uh, box office wise, Zoolander 2 was a bust. Uh, and then I think Anchorman only did so, so. Right. Uh, and I heard <laughs> kind of a side note. Uh, I was listening to, I can't remember what podcast it was on, but Ben Stiller was talking about Zoolander two. And like, he just sounded really agitated because he was like, you know, for years you keep hearing the fans want Zoolander two, the fans want Zoolander two, and then you'd make it. And then nobody shows up, <laughs> which I get like, that has to be frustrating. Cause it's, it, it was this thing of like, Oh, the fans want it. Like everyone's clamoring for Zoolander two. When in reality, I think people just wanted to like, were excited to see Derek Zoolander on SNL, but I don't like when it came down to it, people didn't buy a ticket to go and actually see the whole movie. Right. Yeah. I think it would have been, it would have been some sort of property that I don't think Ben Stiller sort of accounted for like how viewing trends had changed. Like in 2000, um, in 2000 or 2001, I forget when the first one came out, but it, it was 2001 because it came it, out around 9 11. That's yeah. yeah. Um, but like people were really anxious for that comedy. And then, you know, you like the, the 2000s were just this really rich time for the DVD market. And so you could really like get people to view it. It, it also, it should be said, Zoolander 2 is not very good. <laughs> like that's the other thing. <laughs> that's true. Zoolander 2 is bad. It's not a very good film. So there's, there's also that to consider. But I think why people just didn't show up is like they're just viewing habits had changed. And also, um, you know, it, it's, again, comedy sequels are tough because the element of comedy is that comedy is a surprise. It, it's, it works off the unexpected and a sequel is traditionally based on comfort. So I was surprised that Zombieland 2 works as well as it does because it doesn't really reinvent the wheel. It's not like a radically different take that is there to surprise people. If anything, if I, yeah, if anything, it honestly feels like Are you Moira Rose now. Yeah. Shit's Creek. If anything, <laughs> if anything, it's honestly, uh, a bit more of like a hodgepodge of just ideas that felt kind of a little leftover from the first Zombieland kind of mixed together and it works well enough. And I mean, I don't think it's a great film by any stretch, but I was I enjoyed myself while I was watching it. It's a weird film because it's a sequel where it's just exactly the same. It's exactly the first movie, but it's not exactly the same movie, if that makes any sense. So it's not like The Hangover Part 2 where it's like, oh, it's just the same fucking story. Like, this is stupid. Um, it just feels like more Zombieland. It doesn't feel... Like, nothing feels out of place. There are no major characters that are missing. There are no major new characters that feel like they're coming in to take over the franchise. It's just more. And it's made all the weirder by the fact that it's a decade later. Like, it's so... I was talking to my fiancé about this. Like, it's just so strange that all these people came back. Like, Emma Stone has an Oscar. She doesn't have to come back for Zombieland 2. Woody Harrelson doesn't have to come back for Zombieland 2. Jesse Eisenberg is like doing plays. He doesn't have to come back for Zombieland 2. And yet all of these actors were like, yeah, like I'll take time out of my schedule and probably not make a ton of money because the budget budget on the first Zombieland was only $23 million. I think the budget on this one was around $40 million, which is not a lot. So that means that Emma Stone definitely had to cut her fee, her asking price to be in this movie. So I think that speaks to... Uh, you know, they just enjoy making the. They enjoyed making the first Zombieland, um, and then of course you have Ruben Fleischer coming back to direct, and Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick coming back to write it. Um, which, funnily enough, they didn't just say you know from the writers and director of Zombieland. They said from the writers of Deadpool and the director of Venom, which 
was just funny. Um, but like all of the same people came back and it's not, it doesn't feel like an essential sequel. It doesn't feel like it's not a story that's commenting on how much time has passed, even though a lot of time has passed by virtue of the fact that Abigail Breslin is a decade older now. Um, it's just weird. Like it's fine. It's very fine. I, you know, enjoyed parts of it. Um, I didn't feel cheated or disappointed by it. Like it's a, it's a fine movie. It's very much just like Zombieland, but I don't know. It just feels weird. Like, I can't think of any other sequels that are so just more like, it's just more of the first thing. Mm. I'm sure if I, if I kind of puzzled over it, I could think about some, but I think, yes, I think you're right. I think this is more, one of the things that's interesting about Zombieland 2 is it really shows the limits of Wernick and Reese as writers. And I think we've sort of, I think they have a very limited sort of wheelhouse. And I think they're fine within it. But for instance, like, didn't they also write Life? They did write Life. And I was going to ask, have you seen Life? I have seen Life, and it's <laughs> Life is bad. I have uh, not seen Life. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's it's a it's a kind of a crummy alien knockoff. Um, is it self-referential at all? Does it? No, happen? it's like it's them almost like trying to be like, what if we did a film that's largely without comedy? Um, and the answer is, it's pretty bad. Um, but that being said, this is you know, Zombieland is theirs. You know, this was it's you know, they're the writers of the first one. And really what you see is like they basically they are their sense of humor is perfectly attuned to basically being in your mid twenties. <laughs> like if like like in yeah. your early to mid twenties, that is is very much their wheelhouse. And if you're like a teenager, you think this level of comedy is edgy. And if you're older, you're like, this is a little immature. And I was in my early to mid twenties when I saw the first Zombieland. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's funny. When you go back, I, I rewatched the first Zombieland before seeing the sequel, and it's just, it's kind of funny. Like, you, when you look at, like, Jesse Eisenberg as an actor, it's like a tale of two incels. And, like, incel, <laughs> like, incels look at, like, his Zombieland, and they're like, oh, this is who I am. Like, I'm just a sweet guy who wants to brush a girl's hair behind her ear. <laughs> you know, but I'm also, like, really smart, and I would totally survive a zombie apocalypse because I have rules, and, like, I know what's going on. And I'm like, who you actually are is Mark Zuckerberg. Like, just someone yeah. who hates <laughs> society and is resentful. Uh, and, you know, yeah, you might be smart, but you're also an asshole. So... <laughs> You know, that's, <laughs> those are the two, those are your two levels. Um, that was a one hit because Zombieland came out in 2009 and Social Network was 2010. No, I mean, that. Zombieland caught Eisenberg and Stone like right at the right moment because yeah. EZA was 2010 as well. Like, oh, that's right. You know, it got them right at the right time as their stars were sort of on the ascent, but they hadn't made that final sort of breakout level. Um and now they're back for this. And again, like you said, like the, it, it's a film that acts like no time has passed, even though 10 years have passed, which is, to go back to my point about Wernick and Reese, is a very odd decision as writers. Like if you're yeah. a writer, that seems to me, that passage of time seems like a rich sort of vein to tap into. Like, oh, we've been surviving zombies together for 10 years. What does it mean to be part of this you know, makeshift family? What is the world like? And they're all like, there are faster zombies now. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, really? That's all you got? And it's like, well, Abigail Breslin wants to branch out. All right. Like, <laughs> it's just basically, and then like a lot of it's just replacement stuff. Like, oh, well, in the first movie, Woody Harrelson was really after a Twinkie, but in this one, he's just, he's really wants to go to Graceland. I'm like, okay, do you pull this shit out of a hat? Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, there's no, it, and again, like, they're just like, oh, it'll be fun. And like, to their credit, it is. Like, they are good within a very specific comedy wheelhouse. But they're also not guys I'd be like, they can write anything. Well, I do give them a little bit of leeway on Zombieland because... Um, well, and I know, so after the first movie... So the first movie was a hit, but it wasn't, like, spectacular. It Its budget was $23 million and it made $102 million. Um, so it made a profit, but it wasn't this, like, global phenomenon. And maybe it made a lot more on DVD market. It probably did. Um, but I know that the studio commissioned a sequel right after that and they started working on it. And then like this, like the studio didn't love the script or everyone wasn't on board with the script. And then they went away and did, they were busy on Deadpool and Deadpool two and they did life. Uh, and I think the studio had other people try and make, uh, Zama then two scripts, uh, well, Dave the Callahan. There was even like a, a TV show. Yes, there was an Amazon TV show that was back when Amazon would make a pilot and then put it online and you had to vote to see which pilots you wanted to see picked up the series. Uh, they did that. 
Um, but David Callaham is uh, credited as a screenwriter on the film, um, and I think he was hired to do like a rewrite of their script. And this was so he, I think he was the onset writer for the first Ant Man, and uh, he's credited as a co-writer for Wonder Woman 1984. But I don't think he wrote alongside um, Reese and Wernick. But the point being. Uh, clearly the, this script went through many different permutations and what they landed on ultimately was just the first movie again. And I, I was thinking about the, the passage of time thing and, uh, the walking dead in joke. And I feel like now it's really hard to escape you becoming the walking dead. If you are doing something that takes the world a little bit more seriously and takes the passage of time a little bit more seriously and you're dealing with factions and cities and villains and people. And I wonder if you start to put that stuff in, if it doesn't start to feel just like The Walking Dead, the movie. Yeah, I feel like The Walking Dead thing was an interesting sort of joke because it sort of highlights um, – how much that has gobbled up the zombie genre in a way. Like yeah. the popularity of that show has sort of pushed out other ways to approach it. So, you know, in the 2000s, you would get something like Zombieland or 28 Days Later or Shaun of the Dead. And and I think Zombieland to an extent is just like an Americanized version of Shaun of the Dead. Um, yeah. But you, there was room to sort of play around within the confines of the genre. And now it's just like the walking dead now owns the zombie space. And it's, you know, for because that, it's gone on for so long. Well, it's gone on for so long. It's, it's promoted its own spinoffs and no one else is really like, no one else has sort of challenged its supremacy as it were, you know, there, yeah, are, there haven't been like a lot of the, zombie movies or anything. Yeah. Because, I mean, those early seasons told the stories of the early days, and I stopped watching after, I think, season three or four. Um, but it's my understanding that then you go to, like, cities and factions and whatever. It seems like I, I, I vaguely follow along whenever everyone gets mad, and it's just like, oh, and then there's this faction that they hate, and then there's yeah. this faction that they it's hate. It's just new factions. And it's like the whole thing about The Walking Dead is, like, the real danger is people. And I'm like, yeah. ooh, edgy. Well, and now they're doing YA Walking Dead, so they have cornered the market on, like, what are the different ways you can tell a zombie story? And so that's why, you know, I look at it and I'm like, well, maybe just doing the first movie again was the way to make it feel different enough. Because it doesn't feel like The Walking Dead. No. And it's unloving enough. And I think the script is flighty enough that you don't really care too much about the details because you're like, it's been a decade. Um, Like, how have they, like, what are they eating? How are they still surviving? There is like an aside about like how energy still works or electricity still works. Um, but you know, it, it's fun enough that you don't really care. And I think, I think the key to zombie land double tap to making it not feel like a complete and total rehash is the, the new characters that pop off. And I think they're all perfect. Like you don't, you don't spend too much time with any one of them to get sick of them or to make them feel like a replacement. Um, but you get just enough time to get a, a few really solid jokes in. And, you know, Zoe Deutsch is just the MVP of this entire movie. Yeah. Every time Zoe Deutsch was on screen, I was just like, this is the best. This feels like it's worth my time now. Yeah. I didn't start laughing until she showed up. I was honestly kind of disappointed in the film until she showed up. I was kind of bored. Um, like it was fine. Like I would smirk or whatever, but it wasn't really like laugh out loud funny because again, like that first movie felt so fresh and different. Like it had these rules popping up and, you know, it was very self-reflexive and commenting on the unit. Like here was a guy who knew he was in a zombie apocalypse and was kind of having fun with it. Clearly inspired by video games and stuff like that. So yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's hard to recapture that initial spark. And because the screenplay doesn't do anything to really challenge its original batch of characters in any meaningful way, ultimately it rests on the newer, newer characters. And I think you're right. It doesn't spend too much time with any of them, but when they come along, they're, they're pretty fun. Deutsch is just like, she needs to be, I don't understand how she's not a huge well, movie star. I, I reflected on that actually in my, in my review. Cause I kind of thought about like, why is Zoe Deutsch not a bigger star? I mean, we, you know, Vampire Academy was 2014, I think. Yeah. And you know, then there was everybody wants some and you know, uh, is, is it set it up? Is that yeah, set it up, set it up. Um, I think she's done a TV show, another TV show in there somewhere. She's on The Politician, the Ryan Murphy the show. The Politician. Like, which I know was part, like, Ryan Murphy offered that show to Ben Platt outright and, like, offered him to come along and be a producer. And Ben Platt said, yes, under one condition, Zoe Deutsch has to be part of it. So 
Yeah, I mean, she's she is legitimately great. And I was thinking, like, well, why why is she not a bigger star? And my my theory is that it's a lot harder to be a breakthrough comic actress now when comedies are so rare. Like basically there is no easy A for, for Zoe Deutsch in 2010. You could get an easy A that is like a fun teen comedy and it can really like, like make Emma Stone's career explode so that, Oh, she is on everyone's radar. Of course she's, we're going to put her in the new Spider-Man movie. Of course we're going to like, you know, have her, you know, she's going to start doing these big dramas. Like this is a star. Obviously. And I think the issue is, is that no, like the, the kind of properties that would elevate Zoe Deutsch are not getting made or they're not getting made in such a way that people are going to notice them. Like if set it up had been released in theaters in a different time, I think her and, um, oh gosh, what his, the, her co-star Glenn. Oh, Glenn Powell. Glenn Powell would be much bigger stars, but the Netflix of it all, like we can all be like, well, everyone's watching Netflix, but the problem is, is that nothing stands out on Netflix really. So you can be in like a fun movie that people really enjoy, but it doesn't matter as much because it doesn't sort of shake the zeitgeist at all. Uh, It doesn't become a movie that everyone's talking about. It's a lot harder. So Zoe Deutsch exists in this sort of holding pattern where she obviously has the talent. And the question is, is will the right project come along to really elevate her and get her the recognition that she needs? And I was trying to think like, well, like who would be a contemporary of hers that has sort of broken through? And my my thinking was Florence Pugh, but Florence yeah. Pugh went a dramatic route because they're still making dramas. And Florence Pugh, if you went up to someone on the street, no one would know who she was, as opposed to if you went up to someone on the street in 2010, you would say Emma Stone. They're like, oh, is that that girl from Easy A? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I think Florence Pugh is about to break out for one reason. She's about to be in a superhero movie. She's going to be Well, exactly. Like those stepping stones. But those stepping stones were there where she could sort of have like, oh, Lady Macbeth made like got people who are in the business to notice. And yeah. then this year she's been in fighting with my family, which didn't do anything, but it's still a leading role. And then midsummer, which sort of elevate her a little more. And then she's also going to be in little women. And then she's you no. Know, and then, like you said, now she's in a Marvel movie. And, but like there was sort of that pathway where it's like, Oh, well she can do dramatic work. And I think Zoe Deutsch, not that she's can't do dramatic work, but her talents are so comedic. Where does, where does a comedic actress thrive in 2019? And I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think it's that whole thing of like, you got to be in a Marvel movie movie nowadays in order to break out that way. Um, and like Marvel's doing like Spider-Man Far From, or Spider-Man Homecoming is like Marvel's version of a John Hughes movie. But who's making a John Hughes movie nowadays? Like you look at something like Booksmart, like that should have been huge and it wasn't. Even Good Boys, like it had a really spectacular opening weekend, but then that movie just dissipated from the public consciousness. Like what is the... What is the longevity of films like that? Where is the next super bad or something like that? And comedy is just in a really rough spot. Yeah. I mean, my current theory with comedies is that we're just sort of in a kind of a cycle with it where I don't think like comedy is dead, but I do think we're in sort of a, not a fallow period because there are good comedies getting made, but for whatever reason, people aren't going to go see them. And I think in like, two or three years, maybe people are going to be like, the comedy is back and nothing will have changed. But like people are like, the comedy is back. Yeah, because some film will just, you know, be released at the right time with the right actors and the right plot and people will really go for it. The Hangover remake. No. The all-female Hangover remake. (laughs) Wasn't that that Bachelorette? Oh, yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Um, Anyway. uh, So, yeah, but I really liked Zoe Deutsch in this. And and again, I, I feel like she... She has the talent. I just really hope someone, some director out there is like, I need her to lead my movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what it'll take. I feel like, I don't know. I have a feeling she is in something big coming up or um, like was up for something big coming up, but I can't remember what. Yeah. Maybe it was Zombieland 2. That was the big thing that she landed. Um, but I don't know. She's fantastic. And, you know, I I was a little... I was curious to see how they were going to use Emma Stone in this because she's just so huge. Like he's, she's a movie star. Yeah. Like our, like I was with a couple friends before the screening and we were like, like they were like sort of like postulating, like, are they just going to kill her off in the first 20 minutes? Yeah. I I thought they were going to kill her off. And then, uh, you know, when she leaves, it was like, Oh, she's going to be gone for the whole movie. Nope. She's still just, you know, major supporting character. 
Well, that's it's another so interesting thing about that's another interesting thing about Zombieland, and I haven't seen the first one in a while, so I can't remember. But like, you never really fear for the lives of these characters. Like, it never feels as no, though they, you don't. Yeah. Like, that's actually was sort of unco- like, yeah, that's sort of one of the ways it upends the zombie film. Is like, yo, well, someone's gonna get turned at some point. You know, someone's gonna yeah. die. And Zombieland's like, no, <laughs> that's not what the, that's because this movie is more about a makeshift family. It's about yeah. people coming together. And I thought that actually in the first Zombieland was a clever way of upending the genre of sort of sort of playing with it. And, you know, rather than tearing people apart in sort of this wasteland for people come together. I thought that was a really fun and cute way. And, and honestly, a, a sort of necessary counterbalance to the dark comedy surrounding the film. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, um, I was pleasantly surprised with Zombieland too. I would say like, it's the kind of film where like, I don't think you need to rush out and see it, but like, if it's, it's totally worth a rental, it's, it's fun for what it is. Yeah. It's enjoyable. It's fine. If you liked the first movie, you'll like this one. If you didn't like the first movie, you won't like this one. Yeah. Pretty, pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Again, it's weird. Like it's not, I mean, even Anchorman two was like, let's take on, uh, you know, an entirely different thing. Like, let's take on the 24-hour news cycle. And, like, it was very specifically commenting on um, stuff. And then Zoolander 2, I think, was very different, too. But this one's just like, no, nah, we're just going to do Zombieland again. Yeah, just more of the same, which yeah. is fine. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I can, I'd rather have that than another Lega sequel. <laughs> yeah, agreed. You know, where, which I, you know, apparently is what, uh, or, the, or the sort of the Force Awakens kind of model, which is apparently mm. what, uh, the new Terminator is. Yeah, I think this is far superior than only bringing back like Jesse Eisenberg or Woody Harrelson, and then like having them just fill a supporting role and like handing it off to a new cast of characters, yeah, as if it's some grand mythology. Yeah, setting up like this big franchise and whatever. Like, no, we're just going to spend time with the characters we liked again, and bring in Rosario Dawson and Luke Wilson and Thomas Middleditch for some fun cameos and stuff. So yeah, and and that's fine. Yeah, totally fine. Uh, now, now let's talk a little bit about something that, that I, that I think there's a lot more meat to, which is, <laughs> yes. uh, Watchmen. Uh, yes. and, and the first question I have, so we're recording this on, on the Monday after the series premiere of Watchmen on HBO. And the question I have for you, did you ever read Watchmen the comic? I did not. So okay. that's why I'm excited to talk to you about, to someone who is familiar with the source material. Yeah. <laughs> Cause my, my uh entire knowledge of Watchmen is the Zack Snyder film, which I saw at a midnight showing when it came out with a group of friends. Uh two of the friends like were obsessives about the comics and me and another guy had not read the comics and didn't really care about it. We showed up like super early for the midnight screening. So me and the guy who didn't care about it went up to the bar in the theater and got drunk. So I was drunk for like the first half hour of Watchmen and then I was just really sleepy and bored. Um, and then this past weekend I rewatched the movie uh sober for the first time since it had come out. Um, and I watched the director's cut and my impression was that it's fine and it's an interesting story, but it's not a movie. It's just like, it's kind of episodic and the narrative is a little weird. And yeah, it, that's it, what it happens looks... when you just transfer the book to <laughs> yeah. a movie. Like that's the thing. Like there are, there are a few things that were excised and then one big thing that was changed. But Zack Snyder made the most slavishly faithful <laughs> adaptation of Watchmen that he could because that's how Zack Snyder's adaptations work, which is if you see 300, you're just seeing the book, but it's in motion now. And that's kind of was his approach to Watchmen, which is like, oh, these panels are just storyboards. And it sort of takes the life out of it. And it also doesn't recognize that these are two different mediums. Like the episodic nature of the book works because the book is in 12 chapters mm-hmm. and it's like, and it sort of builds and interconnects and, but it, it works for the structure that it has. And I don't think Zack Snyder really understood that with the movie. It's just not really, as someone who didn't read the comic, it's not really propulsive. Like I'm not really sure what Patrick Wilson and Malin Ackerman's characters are like what they want and what they're doing. Well, mostly Patrick Wilson's character. Like, I don't know what his deal is. And I think the big, well, and see, the thing is, is I think another thing that, that, that must be mentioned um, with, between those two adaptations is that Watchmen, the comic is a deconstruction of superhero comics. I would say Zack Snyder's movie comes too early because superhero movies still weren't really a thing in 09. Like they were getting there, but they hadn't really taken off. 
um, to sort of that escape velocity. So instead of making a movie that could be commenting on the state of superhero cinema, he's just making a straight adaptation of a comic. And so in a comic book, um, Malin Ackerman and, and Patrick Wilson's characters, Night Owl and Silk Spectre, they are there to comment about like, you know, the do-gooder superhero trope that doesn't necessarily work. And, you know, what does that mean in, in, in this context of a superhero story? But if you drop them into a movie as, as leading characters, they don't work as well because Watchmen doesn't really have leading characters. It's an ensemble piece. And that ensemble is better explained in the context of a book where you're like, oh, Rorschach is Batman in the sense that what would Batman really look like? And Batman would be more of a Travis Bickle type. He wouldn't probably be wealthy, but he would be this sort of unforgiving, unrelenting um, vigilante who is pitiless and hates people. That is what Batman probably looks like. Or Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan is Superman. If you had godlike powers, you would probably be somewhat aloof and disconnected from humanity. That's the ideas that the comic is playing with, but the movie is just straight adapting the comic without sort of considering what those ideas are. Yeah, see, I didn't get any of that when I first watched the movie. I, like, it made more sense this second time. Um, you know, having lived through a decade of superhero movies, uh, and, uh, you know, become more, more familiar with them, but the movie does play it straightforward. So like you start with the comedian and then you're like, I don't like, it's not until at least halfway through the movie that you find out who and what Dr. Manhattan is, which felt strange. I don't know. Yeah. It's no, weird. it doesn't like, again, like his sex, I understand. He was like, I just want to make a straight adaptation of Watchmen you know, beat for beat and it doesn't work in a movie. It doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, it's great that you added some Philip glass to that sequence, but you know, at the end of the day, you're, I don't really think that's his own. I don't think he made it his own. I don't think he made the necessary sacrifices that an, a, an adaptation would require. And, and honestly, maybe you can just say that Watchmen, the Watchmen movie came too soon because a a good Watchmen movie would, would, uh, dissect the superhero film in the way that the Watchmen comic dissected the film, uh, dissected comics, which leads me to why I think this adaptation is actually very well-timed. Yeah. Because now we're in 2019. Superhero movies are a thing. We know the beats. We know they've taken off. And one of the things I kind of wanted to comment on from the first episode, and it's in the background, but I'm very excited to see how it plays out, is they're like, there's a show called Real American Hero. Yeah. And so in the comics, there's something called Tales from the Black Freighter, which yeah. is a comic book that someone is reading and it's sort of the events of it uh, sort of rhyme and sort of tie into, like they don't affect anything, but like what is happening in the Black Freighter comic is sort of in a weird way coinciding what's what happening in the real world. And I think uh, the real American hero is what Lindelof is using as his Black Freighter in this world. But I also think it's going to be very interesting because in the background of it, you know, to have this story about like the real American hero in Watchmen, the TV show is based on the Minutemen from the Watchmen comic because this this series takes place 30 years later. And I'm very interested if he's going to be like, how do we mythologize superheroes? What does that look like in a world that actually had superheroes? Um, I'm very excited about that little background detail. Did you see who uh, is the showrunner creator of the Real American Hero? I missed that. Who is it? It's Ryan Murphy. Nice. <laughs> that <laughs> so, makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So Lindelof did an interview with Paste uh, and talked about how, like, in his mind, this is essentially like the American crime story, but or like American horror story, but this is the Real American Hero story. So it's Ryan Murphy anthologizing uh, superheroes, the lives of like these Minutemen. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think that's kind of funny, but yeah, it's I mean, it's it was great. Like that pilot is fantastic. I was, I was blown I was, away by yeah, it. Yeah, I I mean, and, and the thing is, like for gosh, basically since July when they screened it at TCA, you know, I've we just been hearing, oh, this Watchmen pilot, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's great, and I'm like, uh, you know. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I, I'm not a leftovers guy. Maybe it's just the leftovers fans over here just yeah. che cheering it. No, this this pilot is honestly to put it on the level. 
up there with Lost, <laughs> you know, like a pilot that really grabs you and puts you into this world and makes you want to learn more about everyone involved. Yeah, it's an incredible feat of storytelling. And and I think something that's a little, been a little bit under discussed uh, in the uh, post screening uh, conversation, uh, the world building is incredible. And I think that's a testament to Nicole Castle's direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt and, you know, full disclosure, born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right here. Um, this show does not feel entirely like Tulsa, but it also does not feel entirely dissimilar from Tulsa. Um, and the way that they built this world out, like it just feels so tactile and real. And I love that they don't stop to explain why cell phones don't exist or why there are squid falling from the sky. Um, these are details that if you know the comics, you maybe can infer some things, but um, the world feels real. Like it feels fully lived in. And I think that's, that's something you can say about some of the best pilots, um, you know, uh, lost being among them. That this feels like a world you want to spend some more time in with characters you want to spend some more time in. And then with very carefully beaded out um, plot developments that are kind of shocking and are meant to intrigue you and compel you, including that last final shot, uh, which is pretty unforgettable. Um, It makes me want to devour the whole season right now. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting that Lindelof is doing is he's sort of using like, okay, well, we're in an alternate reality and Watchmen has always been in an alternate reality. The comic was in an original 1980, an alternate 1980s where Richard Nixon is still president. And so like all these things are, are you know, it, it, it acknowledges that it's in an alternate world. Um, and I think Lindelof is sort of using that to sort of turn some notions on their head. And I don't know how they're going to play out. It, 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 it feels very much like a high wire act at this point. Um, where it's possible we get to the end of this nine episode season and we're like, well, that fell the fuck apart. Um, <laughs> yeah. It could, it very well could. It and would if not it, be the first time that Lindelof's done that. No, it would not. Yeah. Um, but I would say like, he is definitely doing some things that really toy with your expectations. So for instance, early in the, in the series premiere, there's a, there's a, um, a, a cop pulls over a guy. And the cops in this world wear masks. No cops work on the station. They work for anonymity. Uh, they work uh, not for anonymity. They work under under anonymity uh, because they believe that if they are not anonymous, then their lives will be in danger. But the the anonymity also gives them a lot of power. So then, but the the cop who has pulled over this guy, the cop is black. The the passenger is white. So already we, we've sort of sort of inverted a dynamic that we understand and changed it. And then the scene then flips again where in this world, cops do not have automatic access to their firearms. They have to request for permission for their firearms to use them. And that creates another level where you're like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're, we exist in a world where we believe, I think rightfully, that cops use excessive force far too often and it results in tragic outcomes. Wouldn't the opposite of this being like cops have to request, like they don't have ready access to their firearms. They have them, but they have to request them. And what does that look like? And I think by this sort of this narrative tension of what we recognize and what is existing in this world really opens up some interesting discussions that challenges our notions, but also forces us to think deeper um, about what we believe and why we believe it. And I think that's really good storytelling. Well, and that comes on the heels of the stunning opening sequence. Yeah, which, I don't want to. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. <laughs> which dramatizes the Tulsa race massacre, uh, which is an event in history that actually happened. If you watch the show, uh, it happened in 1921. There is a reason you have not heard about it. I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I did not learn about the Tulsa race massacre until a few years ago. Uh, immediately after, I mean, briefly, what happened was um, after a couple of inciting events. There was this place called Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Uh, it was uh, it's part of what's called the Greenwood District, and it was a bunch of black-owned businesses that were thriving and were doing incredibly well, despite the fact that the Ku Klux Klan uh, was running rampant in Oklahoma and Arkansas and Kansas, um, you know, neighboring states at the time. Uh, and after a couple of inciting events, uh, well, actually, the original inciting event is that uh, there was an incident where. Uh, a young white girl got in an elevator with a black elevator operator. And we don't know exactly what happened inside the elevator, but the white girl came out screaming. They both ran out and she was screaming. Um, the black elevator operator was arrested, 
the newspaper framed it as, uh, you know, um, he had assaulted her, even though she was unwilling to testify against him and didn't want to press any charges. And so the newspaper incited uh, disruption in the city. And um, mobs started to form outside the courthouse where the, the young man was being held. And one thing led to another, and all these white people went down the Greenwood District, which was, you know, the the black district, the thriving black district, and burnt it to the ground. Um, in the immediate aftermath, the Tulsa newspaper originally only reported two white people had been killed and didn't even mention any black people that had been killed. Um, the estimates of the, the number of uh, black people that were murdered during this incident are between 100 and 300. But the reason you don't know about this is because pretty immediately uh, there was a pretty significant cover-up. The newspaper article disappeared. Um, the number of people that had been killed was being underreported. And all of these people that had lived in this thriving district were either now dead or displaced. They were living in tents uh, just outside the city. And, um, you know, and then the predominantly white Tulsa just kind of like rose and, and paved right over it. Um, and this is like, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pretty, it's a terrible thing that happened. And the, I mean, no one even knows exactly where these bodies were buried to the point that they, they started, uh, a commission was started in the 90s in Tulsa to try and find where these people were buried, but then the mayor at the time didn't want to try and excavate. They had narrowed it down to three areas in Tulsa where they think that these mass graves were, and um, the mayor in Tulsa didn't want to excavate, excavate at the time because um, the mayor was stupid. Uh, we have a new mayor now, and very recently, within the last year, um, he has started efforts to actually go out and excavate, excavate and find where these bodies are buried. So there is finally forward momentum being taken. But like to give you an example of how deeply this was buried, this wasn't even part of the Oklahoma State curriculum until last year. Um, and that was a bipartisan bill that was passed in the Oklahoma State Congress. But like it's just something that wasn't discussed. And even then, when it was first re reported, it was called the Tulsa Race Riot. And when I first heard about it a few years ago, it was the Tulsa race riot. And it wasn't a riot, it was a massacre. By framing it as a riot, you're saying you're placing blame on both sides, when in reality, it was a bunch of white people that went and burned down this entire area. So the episode opens with the Tulsa race massacre. And like the it's a harrowing sequence. And it's it's I'm sure it has something to do with what we're going to learn in subsequent episodes. But I don't think it's a coincidence that the scene directly after that you see someone is pulled over by a cop. You do not see the cop's face. You see a light shining inside the car. Um, and then when you finally do see the cop's face, the cop is black. And so here you're already, you're inverting ex expectations, like you said. Um, and it just takes you down these really surprising different paths. And you see how much has changed in Tulsa since then, but how much has stayed the same. Yeah, it's it, the the sort of, by leading with the Tulsa race riots, it basically, it's Lindelof coming right out and saying like, this is what I, you know, well, not even like the race riot, not uh, race riot, race massacre. Sorry. <laughs> um, you the, did a racism. I did a racism. Um, the, what the, the, the opening scene of the film is a movie. It's uh, sort of a, a, it's the small boy watching this sort of uh, silent film. Oh yeah. 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 Um, about Bass Reeves, who also was a real person, a black sheriff, um, and he captures this white thief and the people are like, lynch him and lynch, lynch the thief. And the way it's sort of working itself out, one of the things that's really jumping out at me from the first episode of Watchmen. And again, I don't know if it'll play through on this or, or what, but I think watching the, watching it sort of try to reckon with if justice can only be meted out by force, which is sort of. A super, it's a given in the superhero narrative that justice comes through violence, which is how our own world is based. Justice through violence. There's no, unfortunately, there is no Gandhi or MLK superhero in <laughs> comics. Um, but uh, th those are superheroes in real life. Uh, but the, the notion of justice through violence. Okay, so... A police force is violence that is sanctioned through the state. What happens when you try to approach racial justice and justice? You have a nation that only understands justice through force. 
what happens. And I think by sort of pushing those notions together, you're going to go to some really interesting places, um, especially with, you know, what, what makes us cheer and what sort of repels us. So, you know, the, the pilot episode has the, the, the race massacre, um, and I'm sure from the, the perspective of racists, that is a just action. That is a just <laughs> thing to do. Um, they were inflicting justice for whatever, you know, but, and that is, and we are, that is despicable. Whereas later in the episode, you have Regina King as a superhero kicking ass and we're like, yeah, get those white supremacists. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sorry. Like, I'm going to, like, I, I'm going to cheer for that all day. And Lindelof knows it. Like, he knows that we're going to be like, yeah, if you get a black woman beating the shit out of white supremacists, we are very much here for it. Um, and so watching sort of that give and take and sort of like what is that framing of justice and when is it exhilarating and when is it uh, disconcerting, uh, watching it sort of play out like that was was really exciting. Yeah. Uh, well, and also Don Johnson in the, the night owl ship. It's like, oh yeah, I want them, like, I want them to take down these racists. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I don't know. I just, I really love the world, the world that's being built here and how many questions I have, uh, you know, like what's up with Jeremy Irons' character, who's probably Ozymandias, um, like what's going on there. Um, you know, obviously like, is the squid thing real or not? Uh, what's Dr. Manhattan been doing on Mars all these what years? What do you mean is the squid thing real or not? Oh, isn't in the, at the end of the comics, isn't it that the, um, like the government faked an alien, like an alien invasion? Yeah, it's a, well, it's not the government, it's Ozymandias. He faked, like he faked that aliens invaded. Aliens didn't actually invade, but he dropped a giant squid creature on there to make it look like aliens invaded. Exactly. Like basically he got all these artists and scientists together to teleport a squid into the middle of Times Square, which killed millions of people. Um... And then he killed all the, the artists and scientists so no one could, could tell the truth. Um, okay. And, but he did. He teleported a squid alien-like creature. And that's real. Like in the world of, this, of, of, of Watchmen, that really happened. And the reason yeah. he did it is to avert nuclear war by basically creating an alien other so that people would stop pointing their weapons at each other, their nuclear weapons at each other, and at the, the alien creatures that don't exist, but they don't know that. Sure. What I meant was like, uh, like, are the people going to find out that the squid thing oh, is not real? Yes, that's what I meant. I thought you were like, <laughs> like I, I, the way you phrased it, I'm like, no, no, there did squid did rain on Regina <laughs> King. Like she's not hallucinating. Like that actually did happen in the world of the show. It wasn't Doctor Manhattan bombs. It wasn't Doctor Manhattan bombs as it was in the movie, the Snyder movie. Uh, does Oz, Ozymandias kill Rorschach in the comics? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, well, yeah. Doctor Manhattan kills. Oh, Doctor Manhattan. That's right. He kills him in both because again, Rorschach can't. You know, he won't uphold the lie, but he can't fight back, so they just obliterate him. Um, you know, and the, it's interesting because Rorschach is a racist. Like he's not like you know. I think there's sort of again this sort of Batman element to him where yeah it's cool it's like i'm not trapped in here with you you're trapped in here with me uh but he's yeah. also like he hates liberals like he's not like he's not a progressive thinker he's kind of a fascist vigilante figure um so it's not a stretch to be like his followers who know the truth because the way the you know the movie and the book end is that rorschach's journal has been put out into the world but it's clear it's sort of this kind of conspiracy text it didn't upend anything it's not like you know i don't know i don't we don't know the far-reaching element of it but it's whatever has happened there is now a group called the seventh calvary that are followers of rorschach they wear his mask um and to sort of you know do white supremacy yeah <laughs> to do white supremacy they do white supremacy yeah because rorschach's like uh voiceover you're following on you're like okay yeah streets are dirty things or whatever and then he's like calling women whores and you're like whoa 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 what's going slow on slow down here? man oh, okay it's like oh okay I, I get it he's not the the i mean he has a moral center but it's not the best well and that's the thing he has a moral code yeah, but that is not inherently a good thing when your moral code directs you to do bad things and be violent and like be sort of to never compromise. And like that's sort of the, the you know, a thematic 
uh, climax of the book is like, if you have someone like Rorschach who never compromises, um, what does that look like? Can you, can you possibly fathom the greater good within the confines of your moral code? Yeah. So, and that's the thing. Like, I, I feel like what makes this so far, again, we're just talking about one episode here. What makes this such a rich adaptation is that Damon Lindelof didn't just do a straight like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, it's going to be a TV series, but it's the book. He is adapt. It's a sequel. It is a sequel, but it's it's a sequel that rhymes with what the comic book does. So, for instance, in the comic book, you're like, why did someone kill the comedian? What does that mean? Well, we're going to tell you over the course of the story why he was killed. And here, don't spoil, don't spoil who. I'm not going to tell you who's who killed, but there is some narrative rhyming. I will yeah. say that um, that is done very clearly, um, and and that's just. And again, I mentioned like the the book has tales of the Black Freighter. This has real American. This is American hero story. Like there are th- going to be themes where it's like basically Lindelof is remixing and readapting Watchmen to the to 2019. Um, and I think so far he's doing a very good job. It's incredibly smart. And I have to say as, as, uh, as a leftovers fan, um, I know there aren't many of you out there and I know most people probably just know Linda from lost and then from writing Prometheus and Tomorrowland and, uh, whatever, what was his other big movie that he did? Was it? Oh, Star Trek, the Star Trek movies. Um, he just seems like the the kind of sci-fi guy. But watching Watchmen, I saw a lot of leftovers in there, and it feels to me that leftovers was a very important and necessary evolution in his growth as a writer, because leftovers deals with an un like an unnamed supernatural event that may or may not have happened, but is never approached as a supernatural event. Like people disappeared, we're never going to tell you how or why. That's the end of it. So that's. That's what The Leftovers is, essentially. And so by doing that, Lindelof forced himself to focus on the dramatic aspects of those stories. And the first season got a little too, like, mired down in the deep, dark depression of what it would be like if, uh, you know, a percentage of the population just disappeared. Uh, But seasons two and three kind of got weird with it. There were very strange episodes that took place in very weird places that were not explained like you didn't know if this was in an alternate reality if it was in a different dimension if it was someone just dreaming and it was never explained and but the the mechanics of those worlds still had to work and you had to buy into them and they had to make sense and they were some of the most exciting episodes of the leftovers and you know at the end of the day it was the characters that mattered the most and i felt a lot of that here in watchmen where he's building a world that is weird and it's familiar yet unfamiliar at the same time but you have to buy into this world you have to buy into everything that's going on as realistic and as if it's actually happening to these people and you care about these people and i think i think he really really nailed that yeah it's honestly it's it's the kind of thing where i think once watchmen wraps i'm gonna finally Cause I tried, I watched the pilot of the leftovers and I'm like, Nope, no grief drama right now. Thank you. I'm good. Um, but I think now I'm going to finally power through and, and finally watch all of the leftovers because, uh, Watchmen is so strong. It's not for everyone. And there are very prominent TV critics who absolutely hated the first season and came around to love the show through its second and third seasons. And very specifically, the cold open of the second season, which is just like the biggest what the fuck of all. Like Damon Lindelof has admitted that like his goal with writing that sequence in the writer's room was pointed towards Annie Greenwald, who at the time was a critic for Grantland um, and now... uh, works for the ringer but is also running his own show but andy greenwald did not like the first season of the leftovers and they were like he specifically wanted to do something that would make andy greenwald think what the fuck like how is this the same show so like there was a lot of like lindelof knew his relationship to his audience and to critics when making the leftovers and i think i i mean i think importantly he acknowledged like oh like i took it a little too far here like it's okay to have some levity and some humor in the show so I don't know. I I think we're going to look back and see that The Leftovers was very key to Lindelof's growth as a writer and a filmmaker. And I say that as, as someone who really likes the finale of Lost um, and generally likes Lindelof's writing overall. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious. Like I've never been like a 
There are some people who are like who just fucking hate Lindelof because I think they sort of feel like in sort of the way that we to to pull a recent example like how we're sort of all mad at Benioff and Weiss over yeah. Game of Thrones like that's how they feel about Lindelof. First off, I don't think Lindelof ever did anything as egregious um, <laughs> in terms of like his thematics uh, in term uh, on Lost. Also, Lost is his story. Him and Carlton Cuse. That's their story. They didn't adapt someone else's shit and then yeah. fuck it into the ground. Um, <laughs> fuck it into the ground. So that the, it's theirs, and I think like while I think Lost has some issues along the way, I still. Lost is the show I think I still to this day think fondly back on Lost because I think it works more often than it doesn't. And I think it shows a real preoccupation with character and origin and story. Um, And I think some people got like, well, I need the myth stuff. And like the myth stuff was the flavor. But I think the more it tried to produce to pursue the myth, the mythology, the, the more convoluted and sort of turned in on itself it got when really the stronger stories were was like tell me about who this john locke person is and what yeah. he is about and i think that's sort of where the the show shines and so that sort of understanding of character is really what makes uh, a, a prospect like watchmen so exciting even though you do have this rich world building around it yeah for sure i uh i just can't wait to watch the rest of it yeah i'm i'm very excited um, we will we will revisit this this show at this at the season's end uh, for sure. Um, okay, so uh, we're no no recently watched or reader hot takes today. But again, those reader hot takes, if you have them, if you just if you just like the show and you're like, I, they're not prepared for my feelings on this beloved thing, you know, just send it in. <laughs> Write a review on iTunes. Send in your hot take. We will read it on air. Yeah, um, let us. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.